You're listening. You're listening. You're listening. You're listening to Music Biz 101 and more. If you want to learn about the music industry and you don't know where to go, tune in to WP88.7. Here we are, Music Biz 101 and more. I'm your professor, David Kirk, Philip, along with your Dr. Esteban. Marconi Emeritus. Yes, Marconi Emeritus in the Americas. In the Americas. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, we are rocking and rolling here on Brave New Radio, and we have a great guest today, Jesse Tetchner. I probably said her name wrong from Red Light Management. We will get to her in a moment, along with Sammy Dion, who is the student co-host, who's going to introduce Jesse and ask the majority of the questions today. This is part of a summer class we have going with Nashville. We couldn't go to Nashville, but instead we brought Nashville to us. So we had students reach out to people who would go to our the Music Biz conference in Nashville normally, and then they secured these people for interviews, got them, they become radio shows and podcasts. And speaking of that, you should be listening to all our podcasts on iTunes and the SoundCloud. You should be going to musicbiz101wp.com, sign up for the newsletter, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, the Fetch book at musicbiz101wp. How's all that, Dr. Stavon, so far? Excellent. Thank you. Should we give thanks, sir? Really? We will now give thanks to the folks at Van Dyne Bruno Inc. in White Hat Management with artists like Dave Matthews, Three Doors Down, St. Vincent and Kiss, there's a, notice how I said Dave Matthews, not the Dave Matthews band. He's just got Dave Matthews. He's not good enough to get the band, but he's good enough to get the solo guy. Said mm-hmm. Kiss. All right. There's only one place to go for your band's business management or solo artist business management. Go to vb-cpa.com when you're ready. And we want to give thanks to Christine. Boy. They, a wealth manager at the Forefront Group. Christine has helped professionals all around the world, manage their investments, plan out for the retirement. When somebody like you is thinking of building a bridge to your financial future, that person who is you should think about the Forefront Group and go to Christine Dot. Oi. They at Forefront.com. Leave the last oil off for savings. That would, we wouldn't ask you to do anything but that. And we should know that the University of William Patterson ranked one of the best music business programs in the history of America. Is that true, Dr. Yes. Thanks to you, of course. Uh, all because of me. It has nothing to do with you and your 36 years of running. Or the students. What? Or the students. No, the students, go. they should get no credit. Right. They really, it really, I did it. I did it all. Your way. I'd say, yeah. So, um, Sammy, hello, Sammy. You may unmute and say hi. Hi, how are you? <laughs> Great to have you here, Sammy. And Jesse is with us now. Hello, Jesse. Nice to see you. Hi, how are you doing? Good. I'm your professor, David Kirk Philp. It's nice to meet you. And that's Dr. Stavon Marconi. How are you? Right. Yeah. Okay. Glad to see you. Hi. All right. So, Sammy, why don't you give us a brief overview of who Jesse is, and then you may begin questioning Jesse from top to bottom. You may. Got it. 
today we have Jessie Titchener, who is an artist manager at Red Light Management. She founded an artist and production management company in 2012 called Madhouse Management, and she owned MH Media from 2014 to 2016. So I want to start by saying thank you for agreeing to come on here today. I appreciate it. And let's start by talking about Madhouse Management. What made you want to start the company and what kind of went into founding it? Good question. So when I, you know, I, I studied communications in school and I thought I'd find myself working in broadcast journalism, really focusing on art, artistic endeavors. Uh, I myself was a songwriter and a musician for about a decade professionally. And in an interesting turn of events, I began dating a musician early on. He was kind of coming out and he would serve as you know, our driver, he ran our merch, and then the roles were reversed a little bit, and I was helping out with certain things that he was doing. And at a certain point, it just, it seemed to make sense to kind of take a stab at my additional skill set, which, you know, being a very organized person and having a lot of insight into the industry, I was living in Atlanta, had spent quite a bit of time in LA, and when I made the move to Nashville, Tennessee, I met so many incredible artists that honestly, I felt like were so much more talented than I was. But I, you know, having the history that I did within the industry, I felt like, you know, there were so many talented people, but they were just, you know, they didn't have the information, they didn't have the education. And honestly, I just felt like perhaps, you know, I could start spending my time in a way to serve as an advocate on their behalf. So I, instead of you know, I'd had a couple of offers to go into different management companies, labels, publishing companies, and I just felt like instead of walking into a room and being put in a corner where someone may need a certain, certain aspect of my skills, why not just pursue it all? And I knew it would be, you know, a long road and that I had a lot to learn, but I felt like, you know, what better, you know, what better option to just throw myself in the midst of it and figure it all out? And um, so I ended up, you know, within, I think, two years, I had five people on my staff and we had 12 artists on our roster. Um, within, I'd say, a year, we realized, you know, the magnitude of needs that artists had. And so at that point, we began self-servicing and fulfilling all, you know, label requirements and started acting as a label as well. We started doing radio campaigns. MH Media became as a result of just the need for branding and marketing materials, artists that we would meet that said, hey, you know we would love to work with you but we understand that you don't have time or room on your roster at this point however we could really benefit from your eye on branding so we began MH Media so that we could start to build out websites and help artists with their branding link them up with video directors create media kits for them and things of that nature did you have um, music industry connections already or did you kind of just have to like jump in well, I, I definitely did. When I was living in Atlanta, I was a songwriter and I was working with a lot of artists and producers out of the hip hop camps down there, um, you know, at which that kind of left me, you know, when you're heading from Buckhead to downtown, you end up in the backseat of a car for three hours a day. And I honestly, I was, I was gifted with working with a variety of top tier producers and managers. And I set from the age of, you know, 19 until I was in my mid-20s, just in the back seat of the car for a few hours a day, listening to everything that they were enduring, listening to the struggles, listening to the solutions. Um, so, you know, it was a lot of information, but also a lot of relationships that have been established throughout that time. And when I hit Nashville, it was at the beginning of kind of the that underground rock scene that was coming about as a result of Jack White and Dan Arbach and a lot of... And, Kings of Leon, a lot of these, you know, communities, sub-communities that were being built. Um, and then my husband's community as well through his band. So I had a lot of relationships um, that were just kind of there and I've never been one to be shy to pursue a new one. So it all just kind of came together. And then in 2016, you know, I, I'd spent about a year, year and a half trying to figure out if I wanted to do a merger and go into a larger management company and take my roster with me or start fresh and really start to just build out a new operation. And at that time, I made the decision to join the team at Red Light. Mm -hmm. So everyone says that there's no like real formula for breaking an artist. 
With this in mind, how do you go about creating successful careers for each of your artists without using the same like ideas and plans over and over again? I would agree that there's no one model per se. Um, but with that being said, there is there is a model in which you organize uh, you organize teams to operate around your artists. Um, when you consider each artist, their creative process, the engagement that they have with their fans, the unique in interactions and relationships they have with their fans, and then how to market the artist as well as brand the product, um, those aspects are very different. But when it comes to the model of the business that operates around, there are a lot of similarities. Um, you know, to begin, it's, you know, when I began working with an artist who's to say, you know, every situation is very different, whether they have certain certain team members in play, meaning do they have a label? Do they have a publisher? Do they have an agent? Do they have an attorney? Do they have a business manager? Do they know what a business manager is? Um, and then beyond that, moving into the live side, do they have a musical director, a production manager? Do they have front of house? Have they ever worked in this capacity? So, you know, based on the scale and the experience and the history of the artist, it's, it all works differently because you could be working with an Americana artist who's been grassrooting it and has more so focused on the live side of their industry for the past five, 10 years. And they've not really focused so much on branding and marketing and they may not be so um, educated or effective with their business and financial endeavors. Um, but you may, but on the other hand, you know, I have an artist that came in with you know, a label and a publisher and a new attorney, but was trying to reassess, reestablish what her, you know, what her end game was and what her creative objectives were. And so we had to shake everything up and reassess. That to say, there, there's really no specific model that works. It's kind of like, you know, you could walk into a store and see five different outfits in the window that all look beautiful, but not, you know, not every one is going to fit every person, you know, in, in the most, um, mm -hmm. um, the most appropriate way. Um, that to say, yeah, the model definitely shifts, I think, within genre by genre, artist by artist, within their demographic, with how they engage with their fans, with what their, you know, the live side of their industry looks like, and, you know, what the capacities of the rooms that they're playing to are. At the same time, you know, throughout my Throughout my professional career, I've seen three different shifts in the music industry model and how, you know, music is monetized and how royalties are paid out. Um, you know, when I first was involved in the music industry, physical products and physical sales were, you know, at the fore focus of our business. And then, you know, Spotify came into the market and a lot of other incredible DSPs came along. And then all of a sudden we found ourselves focusing more on the relationships with our partners at DSPs than we were with radio programmers for some artists. That's not the case with all, with all genres, with all artists, and all of those relationships are very important. It definitely was a huge eye-opener to see how we were spending our time though. And now, as a result of the pandemic, we're seeing another shift that is, you know, we're all kind of in flux right now trying to figure out what that is, but I'm seeing myself spend two to three hours a day with new technology companies, with new app developers, um, with virtual reality companies and working, you know, online VIP ticketing bundles for live streams. It's, you know, we are definitely on the forefront of another major shift. And I think within the next year, we'll see a lot of changes, hopefully a lot of positive ones, but I think there will be, you know, there's an intermediate or sorry, there's like an in, let me figure out how to put this. I think there's a need for a solution in the interim, but I think that next year we'll start to see a lot of major gravitational shifts, but also beyond that, considering demographics that, you know, a younger demographic of fans that are not accustomed to going to shows every week, you know, but they're gaming and they're being introduced to artists by video games and things of that nature. It's, there's definitely a lot to learn you know, for all of us within the industry. And I'm, I'm excited to be exploring it and be on the forefront of some of those objectives. What do you think you specifically need to learn? 
I mean, I didn't grow up in a tech-based, you know, world. I, I think we had an, you know, a big Apple computer when I was 12 years old. Um, you know, so it's, and I didn't, I didn't study coding and things of that nature. And so now it's, it's really interesting to sit down with, you know, sometimes I'll hop on a zoom with a VC company and they're getting into a sprint week and we're just talking about where the issues are, where we're seeing decline in revenue, where we're seeing decline in engagement. How do we engage with fans that, you know, maybe they're not engaging right now because of the pandemic and their daily activities are shifting and the way that they're spending their time is shifting, but also how do we analyze, you know, how do we analyze what their patterns and motion are so that we can better understand how to approach them in an organic way and it not be in their face just because we have the means of running ads and putting something in front of someone. Mm -hmm. So before you touched on uh, artists' images and what they want their end game to be, how important do you think it is for an artist to have a strong image without one how much of a disadvantage do you think they're at? Well, I think that having a strong image can mean a variety of different things. You know, I think that there are a lot of celebrity and branding endorsements and partnerships to pursue. If you have an artist that is, you know, clean cut and very focused on fashion, very focused on, you know, they're very just interested in products that would be of interest to their fan base. And I think that, you know, it, it doesn't, doesn't hurt to have an artist that has a very strong image and a very strong brand that people look up to or that they can, that they idolize in one fashion or another, but also, you know, an artist's image and brand can be just as much about their narrative and the message that they're delivering. And if that message is, louder than their physical image, that's absolutely okay. And a lot of times more important. So I think it's a combination of the two, but I think at the end of the day, just helping artists to understand who, what it is that they're projecting, what it is that they're sharing, and then how, how their fans are engaging with them and how their fans are responding to them is very important. If they're kind of unsure of where they want their career to go or what they want their image to be, how do you help them develop it? So I do a lot of storyboarding, a lot of mood boarding, and a lot of research. And I will kind of, I'll help to create a bit of a blueprint and just say, hey, these are the broad strokes that we're working within. We need to do the research. We, I need to under, I need to, if I don't understand it fully, how are we going to communicate this message to our team members or any new team members that we're looking for at the time? And so we'll do a lot of mood boarding and I say, let's pull up colors, let's pull up textures, let's pull up patterns, let's create points of references so that I can fully understand exactly what's in your mind. And then we can also, you know, we might spend a few months dialing into something, but just because we understand that and then go have a conversation with, you know, a potential partner for an endorsement for a tour that it doesn't mean that just because we understand that and we you can't just use your words having a visual storyboard helps so much so we pull a lot of references we put storyboards together and we share those one sheets and media kits are so important um, for that very reason so that you can just put something visual in front of someone so that when you begin to express your initiative or your narrative they have something tangible that they can put their eyes on do you think that their um, image kind of ties in with who you want to partner with absolutely i think that well with the artists that i work with um, each of them definitely have their own space whether it be dark industrial rock or California, um, like quintessential California ease and movement and motion. Um, I think that they're definitely partners that, you know, imaging, it just, it has to be in tune. It has to be in tune, you know, a partner such as 
I don't know, Chevrolet isn't going to necessarily partner up with, and I don't know if I'm allowed to sh share, you know, specific brand names, um, but a partner such as, Chev such as Chevrolet, they're not necessarily going to partner up with an EDM artist. You know, a partner such as, you know, a kombucha company may want to work with um, a more indie alternative artist. Um, you know, I think that when you look at a potential partner, meaning a brand, when you look at their marketing tools, when you look at their website, when you look at their social media outlets and you see the colors, you see the filters, you see, you understand, like you do the digging or they hand you over marketing materials and you see what the demographic is, it's, it's much easier for you to understand if it would be a good fit for your artist. I remember a few years ago, might have been even longer than that, J-Lo did an endorsement for, I can't remember the car company, mm -hmm. it was the wrong fit because the car was too um, low market, it was too inexpensive, mm -hmm. and a lot of criticism because, and it, she's just saying, I'm still just Jenny from the block, but it was a car that she would never, everybody's like, you would never buy that car. It, it's, you would buy a much higher and car than that. And a lot of people I remember just reading stuff about it was just like that, that was a bad, that was a disconnect there. So what I do with each of my artists, when I, when I bring a new client into my roster, I give them a branding questionnaire where we just go through what are their hobbies? What are, what are their interests? What are they not interested in participating with or discussing? And that, and then I hand that over to our labels, to our agencies, if they have branding and partnership you know, divisions in-house. I hand that over to my marketing department. And then as, you know, opportunity, potential opportunities start coming in, they funnel them my way, but it definitely allows for a filter. Is that something you were doing before red light or was that a red light thing that you sort of uh, thought, wow, that's a cool thing to do and I'm going to do that going forward? It definitely was not something I was doing before I was at red light. Honestly, I was so, when I had Madhouse, I was so focused on the operation and staying focused on the artists, it was a much smaller operation. Now having a much larger pool of resources and a much larger wider net team, um, it, it allows me the opportunity to say, okay, well, you know, these six people are over here working on this and then I have a little more time, a little more time to get creative and figure out how to support a more strategic operation. So the branding questionnaire, you know, I came up with that a couple of years, maybe two or three years ago, just saying, how do I best deliver this information to all of our partners to save us all a lot of time? Because mm -hmm. some labels do that as well. Mm -hmm. I think the hardest thing for me, um, whenever I'm talking to someone that I might work with when you're just like getting to know them, um, the hardest thing for me is going through all of that technical stuff and really finding out where they're at. So I was trying to come up with my own questionnaire, but I'm still kind of like workshopping what the best way is to just find out if they're with Sound Exchange, like if they have a distributor yet, all that kind of stuff. So what do you, do you think that the questionnaire is like a good way to kind of get to know their career in the beginning? Well, the questionnaire is more so based on branding and marketing opportunities, um, the one that I was mentioning. But as far as, as far as, you know, who partners and affiliates are and, you know, who someone's PRO is, who's, you know, who's with sound exchange and things of that nature, I typically either myself or someone on my team will go in and just kind of do the research. You go into the back end of BMI. You can find who somebody's publisher is. You can figure out who, who they, where they've been, who they're working with. You know, I'll have my business managers go in and just say, hey, you know, has this been filed a sound exchange? But you can go and talk to their attorney. If they have a good attorney, they've already sent off letters of direction and they've already organized all of that. It really just depends on how far along an artist is. Um, and these are the really important things that a lot of artists aren't, aren't aware of. You know, in the beginning, like they may, like there are artists that, you know, they put a song out and within a couple months, somehow they've hit algorithms within certain DSPs and they have millions of streams and maybe they have a label. Maybe they were working with a friend that was managing. Now, now they're looking for a larger operation to support the growth that they've seen and they don't know what sound exchange is. 
they don't know what a PRO is, or they maybe know, hey, yeah, I'm with, I'm with BMI or I'm with ASCAP, but they don't know what that means. They don't know how things are flowing. They don't understand what's being collected or how it's being accounted for. So I, I honestly, one of the first things I do when I start working with an artist is I bring the business manager on board so that they can begin doing, helping us to do all of that recon so that we can understand exactly where everything is. And a lot of times, honestly, there's a lot of money sitting in back channels. Mm -hmm. uh, is that one of the reasons why you chose Red Light? Because you realized that there were these things that sort of were missing when you, when you were smaller? Yeah, I mean, you know, at a certain point, honestly, I was so overwhelmed with the amount of hours I was working. I mean, I was working 18, sometimes 20 hours a day, weekends mm -hmm. meant nothing. And I've been doing that for a really long time. And I love the artists that I was working with and I had learned so much, but I, need, but I knew for myself that I needed to be in a, in a place at a company where I could learn and I had room to grow and mm -hmm. a lot of support and different tools and resources that I didn't have access to yet. And there were a handful of, you know, large scale management companies, none as big as Red Light, um, but a few that I was very interested in. And, you know, I sat down with the founders and had incredible conversations and really um, highly considered going to a few different places. But at the end of the day, what Corin Capshaw has built at Red Light is in my opinion, incomparable. Um, our operation is extremely large. We have offices in Nashville, LA, New York, London, Charlottesville. We have you know, a handful of satellites across the country as well as across the world. Mm -hmm. And that support is unlike any I've seen anywhere else. Mm -hmm. Does Redline give you a basic artist manager contract that they like everyone to use or do you get to customize them for each of your artists? Question. Um, you know, honestly, we work as, we operate as independent contractors, as managers. Everyone's, everyone's deal is different and I'm not sure how much um, I should share in that regard, but you know, everything is kind of um, made to, you know, it's, it's customized to suit the situation. But as an independent contractor, you're really able to operate at your own speed with your own model. You definitely need to run, you know, run your operation by, you know, like the GM and, you know, just our, like our chief strategy officer and certain people that are very valuable, um, very valuable resources themselves, but there's no one way to do it. Do they also have um, business managers there too, or do you kind of have to like find your own? We do not have business managers within Red Light. There are probably hundreds, maybe thousands of different business managers throughout the U.S. Um, I particularly have a few that I work with that I really love. And when you find a great business management operation and you get dialed in with them and you're speaking the same language when, you know, you're switching gears from being, you know, being creative with your artists to being operational with the labels and being strategic with just everything that comes along. And then you have to go into the financial conversations and your working budgets. You need to be able to operate very swiftly, very effectively, very quickly. Um, so Wiles and Taylor is one of my, you know, I'd say they're at the top of my list. I've worked with Dwight Wiles and Steve Egger and their team there for nearly a decade now. And half of my roster is there. Um, you know, that their team is, they're available around the clock and the services that they offer are second to none. There are a lot of other business management companies out there. You know, I have a client in LA and they wanted to have a business manager in LA. So that's exactly what we did. I have a client in New York and we, you know, when we first started working together, I thought, well, maybe it would be best to have a business manager in New York. And after doing our laps around and taking four or five calls with potential, you know, business managers for this respective client, we decided to go with Wiles and Taylor anyhow. You know, sometimes it's, you know, the only thing at the end of the day is, hey, some people want to drop checks off. Some people want their, you know, their tour manager to be able to walk in a building and drop a check off. And then maybe location is important. But in this day and age, you know, if you're working with, you know, there are certain banks that are very specific to artists and our operations, such as Citibank and there are a handful of others. And so 
as long as you know you have a bank that is you know located in multiple places across the country in my opinion your business manager doesn't need to be you know operating out of the same city that the mm -hmm. artist is located in so since you have clients that aren't obviously in nashville what would you do if you had a client that you just couldn't get in contact with and sometimes they fall off would you stop managing them my number one rule is the first, the first moment that I realize I'm working harder than an artist that I'm working with, we're going to have a major conversation and there's going to be a short amount of time for them to not necessarily correct their behavior, but I'd more say just like get in gear, you know, just like check. I'm working around the clock for you. My team, you know, our like the team that we put together is working around the clock for you. And if I'm going to be available at any given moment on a Saturday night, a Sunday morning, you know, at three o'clock in the morning on a Tuesday, because you're in Australia, you know, and you're not doing your part, then we've got a problem. And I've definitely had to part ways with artists in the past. It's, it's been, it's, it's very rare. Um, but normally, you know, I mean, like I said, I, I work under, certain guidelines and that's you know my my number one my number one prerogative is just making sure that i can support an artist's creative endeavors and you know understand what their journey is understand what their message is and that we're all operating within the same system um, and being effective but if i'm educating you and i'm informing you and i'm sharing information that not all managers do because there is um, a way to keep a certain amount of power and be able to call the shots. I don't work like that. You know, I, I, I inform my artists of everything that is going on so that they can make educated decisions. And if I'm spending that much time nurturing their, nurturing their careers, nurturing their minds, and they're not available to me to pick up the call when we need to deal, deal with something, then they don't understand the business at hand. And maybe, you know, there's something that we should consider. Let's talk about the pandemic and the quarantine. How has it affected the way you normally work? Great question. Um, it's been really interesting. You know, I think within the first two weeks, so what I will say is at the very beginning, one of my clients was out on the road. They had driven from LA to Florida to kick off a tour. They played one show and the pandemic laid in and they had to turn around. We had to cancel the tour and send them all the way back to LA. And we thought, okay, what are we doing? We're postponing the tour. We're probably gonna postpone the tour again. What do we do? How do we you know, nurture the relationship with the fans? How do we engage? And so we had to begin you know, setting out and having calls with so many different companies trying to understand what the live stream angle was, making sure that we weren't just doing live streams just to do it and then just kind of, you know, oversaturating the market and, you know, perhaps lessening the appeal um, to, to fans themselves. Um, but every, every situation was very different. And so within that first two weeks, it kind of felt like we were living in Groundhog Day. It's like, we, but we knew it was coming. Um, it was not a comforting feeling whatsoever. It was, it was a few weeks in before I started to feel some of the anxieties that were circulating around, but it wasn't necessarily anxieties that were mine. It was the anxiety of the art of the artists that I work with. It was anxieties of the agents that I work with. And then just seeing how, you know, people that I care about that I've been working with or just, you know, peers or friends of mine that work within the industry, how their jobs and their, their side of the industry was being so drastically affected. But what I said in the beginning to each of my artists was let's not act out let's not be reactive. Let's not just do what everyone else is starting to do. Let's really figure out what is going to be unique and organic to your interaction with your fans. And so, you know, one artist, we set up um, a tour where thankfully we had, you know, four, four guys were living in a house together, quarantined together. So we had a grand opportunity. So we ended up doing um, a, a live streaming tour of their house. So we hit room by room by room, which ended up being an incredible opportunity. And their fans were so appreciative seeing that, you know, they had had to cancel the tour that they were supposed to be out on. So that was really interesting. Another one of my clients, 
we had been working on a new record for practically six months, um, three and a half, four months of writing, and he was in the studio. We were almost wrapped with the record, and then his engineer had to fly back to L.A., and we said, okay, we'll give this a couple weeks, and we'll go out, and we'll cut the vocals in L.A. That was not the case. He's still not been able to go out to L.A., so then we had to switch gears, and after so much time and us realizing that that was not going to be an option for a while. You know, we had to set up a mobile rig and figure out another means of, of finishing the record. We, and then I also have two clients that, you know, we were, we had just launched. Both of them, interestingly enough, were in, are in the midst of EP campaigns. And we had already launched the campaigns. We had one single out for each of them. And very important records. And we just, there was no option to just you know, put a pin in it and come back to it later. Um, for a variety of reasons with both teams, we decided to continue forward. Now we have ended up moving certain dates back you know, with the Black Lives Matter protests and things that started going on within the world, and just all of the shifts and the sensitive space that we're, that we're all you know, living within, just being mindful of that being really mindful of that and making sure that we're, you know, it just, it didn't feel appropriate to be talking about for, for an artist to be talking about themselves and highlighting something fun and interesting that they were doing when so many people were living in a world of hurt and um, trying to come to understandings that they had ne maybe never faced or had never, you know, certain things that they had never considered. Um, so, you know, we did, we definitely have had some shifts within our campaign timelines, but we've decided to press on because, you know, at the end of the day, music does heal. Music allows, you know, people, humans, the opportunity to take on a new perspective, to wear something new, even if for the day or for the hour, people need to be inspired. People need the opportunity to just try something else sometimes to pull them out of wherever they are. And, you know, both of the artists that are, you know, actively within, you know, their album campaigns, we just, we've, we've had, I mean, I've, I've sat on the phone at midnight for two hours helping to revise messages that were going to be put up in social media or completely redrafting, you know, press releases because we don't want to focus on certain things that we would have if we weren't in this current state. So it's just, it, how have things changed? They've changed drastically. Honestly, I'm grateful for, I'm grateful to have experienced a lot of things that I have, not to say it hasn't been hard or that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not sleeping as much as I would like to, um, but I'm, but I'm grateful that the artists that I work with are mindful humans, and that, you know, the like our streaming numbers might fluctuate, and there's no way for us to gauge because we don't have a point of reference, of, you know, of anything of this nature. Um, but just, but just continuing to move forward, I think, is really important for all of us. It's, it's interesting because I look at since the shutdown happened in March, we've kind of gone through three different periods. We've gone through the initial shutdown where we were sort of all together. And I don't want to say necessarily scared, but everybody was nervous, concerned, you know, what are we going to do? And that sort of um, grew into, from an artist perspective, a lot more live streams and people started to, to get used to it and comfortable with what's going on. So then it became a political thing with the, the hashtag liberate and that all of a sudden sort of turned it from we're all trying to, to, to stay healthy to now it's a political thing. And then the Black Lives Matter and, and then the, the, the murder happened and then Breonna Taylor and all these things. And that became sort of a third thing. And it's interesting because I've talked to, to different artists and, and the, the concern is it's almost like you're tr trying to time the stock market with whether it's releasing a single to, to what are we going to put out on social media to are we going to do this live stream or does it feel wrong right now because there's so much other people are protesting do we feel crass do we feel do we look selfish by putting out our own stuff you know a tiktok of me doing something stupid with a mirror or whatever it's probably the wrong time now you know then you're trying to feel so when will it be the right time, you know? Uh, and it's, yeah, it's, it's billion dollar question. Yeah, I think that's the billion dollar question. When will be the right time? And honestly, I think it's just, I think that you just have to really consider 
who the artist is, what their message is, what the tone is, what the, honestly, what the BPM of the song and the music that you're putting out is. You know, if, if you're working with an artist that is, you know, more of a singer songwriter and they're delivering a message that is inspiring, you know, that is like about, you know, picking, picking yourself up when certain things happen and, you know, they're delivering messages of hope. I think that now is an okay time to deliver those messages. If it's a little more um, up-tempo and fun and about partying, that's not necessarily the message we wanna deliver right now. You know, I think, it's, I think it's absolutely specific to the artist, to their fan base. And you know, if you have an artist whose main demographic is 18 to 22 and you're able to inspire them, great. If you have an artist whose demographic is 18 to 22 and your message is a little more crass, um, I would reconsider that, but I think it's just, it's so interesting. And what I, what I'll add, you know, about the week that, you know, the, the weekend that the protests began occurring, I remember waking up that following Monday and receiving an email in my inbox from red light from corporate saying, tomorrow we're shutting down blackout Tuesday. And on, on Friday, the week before the labels had begun announcing that they were going to be doing that. And honestly, my jaw dropped. I was in shock and I was so appreciative that, you know, we were being told, don't be on your email. Don't be on calls. Really take this time to reflect so that we can all lead together and saying, it doesn't need to be a competition. Let's not put people up against one another so that we can, you know, then go and look at the charts and look at the numbers and look at all the metrics so that we, you know, it's just, there was no room for that. And even MediaBase didn't report that week which was just, I mean, I was receiving these emails and I, I mean, like it honestly makes me emotional to go back to that space and think about it. I was, I was so grateful that our industry came together in the way that we did. Um, and I'm, you know, so many industries have, um, but I was, but personally, I was really grateful to see our company, you know, take a stand and say, it's, let's just, let's not focus on this. It's not about that. Like, let's all just take a pause and really, you know, just, find some gratitude and figure out how we can educate ourselves and educate those around us, educate our artists to deliver a more meaningful message. The Black Lives Matter protests, um, the whole thing is just a really sensitive topic. Like if you say the wrong thing, everyone's like, like cancel culture, they're going to cancel you. So were you um, nervous about any of your artists posting like the wrong thing? I was. Um, I was, and honestly, with one artist in particular, you know, we were in the middle of a campaign and she's, you know, a very sensitive individual. She's very prolific. I mean, you listen to her music and you know that she's pouring her heart and her soul every, you know, every tear and drop of blood into what she does. And she didn't want it to be about her. She just wanted to try to help, you know, help deliver resources and direction to some of her younger fans that maybe needed it. Um, you know, and then I have another client who they could probably care less what I have to say about how they should interact with their fans. They do a great job of interacting with their fans. It's very organic. It's very raw. And they put it all up in the forefront and they lost followers. They lost followers, but the followers that they had that stuck around were so grateful that they were saying what they were without a filter. Um, and you know, they were there involved in the protests. They were there on the front line of everything because they wanted to go and support, you know, the, the cause that is, and you know, they're just not the type of people that are going to post about something and not go and get in the midst of it. And then I have other artists that, you know, they aren't sure how to, how, how to project the message or share the message and what exactly to say. So they chose to try to, you know, sit back a little bit and wait. And then, you know, they ended up doing a cover that, you know, was, was supportive and encouraging and did that um, a little bit later. So it's just, it's, it's honestly, every artist is very different because they're not just artists, they're people. Um, and every person responds to um, change in a different way.
Yeah, I know that a lot of artists or bands that I follow were posting for um, like the Blackout Tuesday. They put their they put their statement or whatever they wanted to say, and they've been getting more political. And I have seen comments where people are getting mad and saying, "I'm gonna I'm gonna stop streaming you. I'm not a fan anymore." And I've seen most of them reply to those comments with, "Well, we don't want you to be our fan if you feel that way." So I definitely think that a lot of their fans are appreciative that they're using their platform to speak out about it. Going back, do you think live streaming concerts is gonna be the new normal after the lockdown ends? I absolutely think it's um, much more a part of the norm and will continue being than what we were accustomed to six months ago. It's going to be really interesting to see what happens. I mean, you know, we're now seeing, you know, some of the fall festivals, Lollapalooza officially canceled, Coachella, Shaking Knees. There are only a handful of major festivals that are still currently, um, you know, scheduled to occur, and we'll see what happens with those. I think that there's there's so many risks and so many liabilities, um, you know, state by state, city by city, county by county. Um, and then, you know, now we're seeing, we're seeing another uprise in statistics regarding the pandemic. And I think it's all going to be, you know, it's, it's just, it's all up for question because we have no idea how, how to gauge how people are going to move as these restrictions continue being um, let up. You know, now we're seeing that in some states they're considering putting more restrictions back on. So it's, it's hard to predict. It's hard to, um, be an analyst of the pandemic, but I do think that, you know, moving into fall, we're going to see a lot of these festivals, you know, create unique streaming opportunities for, you know, for artists as well as fans. And I think that moving into fall, you know, there are going to be some creative ideas that are being generated right now that will be applied, a combination of, you know, we're starting to see drive-ins. One of my clients, we did the first one in LA, we did a proof of concept and we set up at an undisclosed location, had, you know, every, at like everyone on deck so that when they came in, you know, like cars were set up about 10 feet apart. They weren't allowed to move, you know, get out of their vehicles. There was no bathroom, no, no snacks, nothing of the nature, but they were able to you know, set up a DIY rig and perform, and it was incredible, you know, and, and now we're starting to see a lot more of those occur throughout the country as well as throughout the world. I definitely think that that's going to be a big part of things, but it's also going to be interesting to see how live streaming becomes um, a, a tangible hand-in-hand -hand partner with that, and, and honestly, um, I think that figuring out how to interject VR experiences with that is going to be, you know, a part of what it's, it's going to be something that we start seeing more and more of. We actually, I just worked with a company called Melody VR. Um, they're based in, they were originally, they were founded in London, but now they have a setup in LA where we were able to go in and do a full on production. I mean, I'm working with the creative team in London and the directors. I want to say two of them were in LA, one of them was in New York, one of them was in London. But what, what a phenomenal opportunity to utilize technology for artists to be able to create unique content to be able to, to be delivered. And you can live stream, you can also pre-record things. But, you know, VR experiences have been occurring, you know, with festivals, a lot of them more in the electronic space in the past. But I think that that's something that we'll start seeing more and more of. And then I think there'll be a combination of things moving into the spring. I mean, it'll be interesting to see, you know, state by state what we're allowed. If, you know, if, if a theater is the largest venue that you can go into, and maybe it's, you know, every three seats so you're only at a third capacity and then what will you do will you bundle unique exclusive opportunities um you know exclusive merchandising opportunities or you know meet and greets group meet and greets um for your fans to be able to interact with your artists i think that it's you know only time will tell um but i think that i i would hope that come end of spring early summer we'll be able to be back in at least, you know, 50 to 70% working order on the live side of our industry. Um, I know that, 
you know, most festivals that have had to cancel this year, they have set, they've rescheduled the dates for next year and they are rebooking some of the talent, leaving room for, you know, new artists that find, you know, an uprise and growth in their career to be a part of those things. Um, but I'm, I'm very curious as to how that will all occur because, you know, I, I've seen so many polls and so much data as far as, you know, you, you poll a hundred people and, you know, maybe 60% say they're ready to go to a show, but then you read an article, I read an article this morning or last night saying that, you know, the top, like the top 10 riskiest places to, you know, actually contract coronavirus is, you know, the, the number one being bars and entertainment venues. Um, so I think it's just, I have no idea how each and every person out there is dealing with the anxieties surrounding the pandemic. Um, but it's just, I think it's time, time will tell, time will tell. Did you, um, Dave, maybe you can help. Did you see the deal that Garth Brooks made with drive-in movies? I saw the title of an article yesterday, but I had not been able to dive into it. Did he do it with live you, you read it. Recently. Yeah, he's doing 300 uh, drive-in, we'll call them theaters, uh, all on June, it might be later this week, but 300 simultaneous theaters. He's playing one and it's gonna be simulcast around hundred dollars per car to go and um i i worked out i think the, the average cost was going to be or he, the revenue was going to drive like 7.5 million dollars which was great for garth but i remember thinking you know for the the, the non-garth bands whether you're a baby band or you're a developing act you know that's not going to happen so um the, the, it's a very interesting you know uh unique novelty i think for a garth brooks but for a lot of the other bands, I don't know if that's the solution. Yeah, one, um, two of my colleagues manage a band that are based in California, and let's say it was weekend before last, they partnered with a radio station in California, and they were the radio station kind of headed up the production, and they did a drive-in show, had a few hundred cars there, and it was a major success. You know, and I and I know that Live Nation is now, um, you know, they've announced that they're do, they're going to do drive-in series. I think it's going to be really interesting to see how some of the the bigger footprints, um, you know, with larger larger amount of resources, are able to pull those opportunities together. What I want to say is, what a gift, you know. And this, like I like my colleagues both said, you know, it was just so touching. Like you know, we all work in this industry because we love music as much as we get wrapped up in all of the the details, the strategy, the organization, all of those things, when you're at a show, it's just, you just, you, you fully realize why you're doing what you're doing. And so to have been deprived of this, um, of this thing that fuels us for, you know, even if it's just been since the beginning of March, you know, for, for, for three, three and a half months to have been there at that show, like for them to say, it just, it recharged them, you know, like for a manager, someone who's so inundated with all of these details, I can only imagine for a fan and especially, and for an artist to be able to have that outlet to pursue. So I'm, I'm excited to see, you know, what, what continues to occur with the drive-in scenarios. And I think that we're going to see a lot of variety of other, you know, spaces, you know, if, if we're not utilizing, if we're not utilizing or like sports arenas, um, what are those parking lots going to be used for? You know, like there, there are so many different industries that are being affected by what's, what's occurring right now. You know, maybe for the smaller artists, you know, it'll be, you know, the barbecue shops and some of the mom and pop businesses that set up, you know, screens and they partner with the local radio stations or, you know, they partner with podcasts and try to further the broadcast. Yeah. Uh, we have a, semi-successful local band here, but the average, I think the average, um, the average audience is well over 50 years old. Anyway, he's playing a mammoth racetrack and it's gonna be a thousand cars at a hundred dollars a car. And they sold out in about five hours and local food trucks are gonna bring food to the cars. That's uh, you know, they're gonna have waiters and so on to go to the cars. Mm -hmm. So it's going to be not simulcast or anything. It's going to be live 
at the Mammoth Racetrack here, July 11th. Are you going? I No, it sold out so quickly, but I'm very close with the manager, so I guess I could go, but I'm just in awe that it could be done so quickly, because here in New Jersey, nothing's happening. You know, we're going to be the last for uh, large events, mm -hmm. uh, us in New York City. Mm -hmm. So uh, it was just very interesting. Usually he plays a place called the Stone Pony mm -hmm. in Asbury Park on July 4th weekend, mm -hmm. and they get about um, four or 5,000 people outside in a corralled um, sort of area. So yeah, it was just interesting to me that, that there's certainly the gross is much higher than he normally would get. Do you know if they're going, so do you know if they're going to live stream it at all or go on Instagram live? I haven't, maybe Instagram live, but I haven't heard anything about streaming yet. Man, it's on Southside Johnny. They could deliver you. it later to fans, you know, that weren't able to go. Mm -hmm. I love the Stone Pony. I mean, that makes me feel kind of nostalgic. I think I'm, I'm, I'm so conflicted. I, I have, honestly, I have. I have so much anxiety around people's choices right now. Um, mm -hmm. Just, you know, pertaining to germs and spreading of the virus. Um, I can't wait for live music to come back around and for it to be, you know, a thing of the norm. But I also want to be very cautious and very careful as to protect, you know, the people that I work with, both the artists and their crews, as well as, you know, the fans that will be there to observe. You know, I just, it's one thing to consider the risks and the liability, um, you know, both financially and legally. Um, it's another to consider just putting people in a situation that could be yeah. compromising. Well, we just opened up today, just opened up in New Jersey, um, outdoor dining. And you can see the restaurants that have all built their things under tents and so on. But outdoor dining, if it's successful, and they do have the six-foot social distancing, but if it is successful, you certainly could see single artists coming back mm -hmm. very quickly to play in those uh, areas. And it would be a great start. Please keep me posted as to how yeah. it goes. I'm so curious to see, you know. And that's a, we are the epicenter, so we're sort of last, but everybody is, um, uh, we feel Dave, you can tell me too, or Sammy, uh, much more confident on what we feel safe doing. Mm -hmm. So everyone wears a mask. Everyone now goes to supermarkets when they were afraid to a while ago, start doing uh, nail salons and hair and so on. And everybody's uh, talking to their uh, hair cutter about coming to my deck instead of me going to you and you can cut my hair there and then just give a kick back to the salon and, and so on. So like everything else, you can be very creative and maybe not have a, uh, a second wave or, or whatever. Well, I wish you all luck as you begin your reopening and moving into this, to this next phase. I hope that you know, everybody moves with safety and caution in mind and that you know, the results yeah. are positive. Yeah. Well, this interview has been very positive and we actually do need to wrap it up. So Jesse, you did a perfect job of sort of leading into the, can we please end this now phase. <laughs> Thank you all so much for having me. It was, it's been a real pleasure. And Sam, I wish you luck as you move forward. Please feel free to reach out at any time as, as you, you know, take these next steps, um, you know, through school and into your career and, Thank you both, um, Stephen and David, for having me today. Thank you for being here. All right. Come on, yeah. We appreciate it. Take care. Be well. All right. Bye now. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. So that was Jesse, and that was really good. So it was very now, good. Do we need... You know, We're going to end the show. We need to end the show. Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know her acts, so I really couldn't say much, but um, certainly if... I don't know. I don't know the arrangement that Corin has with all these. I wish they knew with all the other companies, but we're certainly going to need it for our seventh edition. So <laughs> yeah, we didn't have time to get into some of the stuff that uh, we kind of spent a lot twenty minutes on COVID. So, but that's yeah. where we are right now. But uh, but Sammy, we want to thank you very much, Sammy Dion, for for making this happen. So thank you for that. Thank you. We appreciate you doing this from the airplane hangar in which you're. 
working right now. And Dr. Stabon, of course, thank you for being here. Now we're going to end the show. So at the end of every show, we do not say hello. That'd be silly. What do we say, Dr. Stabon? I think we say at Wiedersehen. We never say that. You started saying that in the COVID days, but we've always before that. I've traveled way too far to lose myself. I've been through hell and back. I'm back. I battle tainted minds, misconceptions of my kind. Leave them guessing all the time who I am, who I am. Ready like soldiers. Smile like you're happy. Be of the mustang.